Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date, informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Today on the show, I have Dr. Matthew Weiner from Arizona. Matthew is a bariatric surgeon who's performed more than 3,000 bariatric surgeries since joining his first practice in 2006. Matthew frequently does complicated revision surgeries and also performs general surgery. The main reason I've invited Matthew on the show is because I think we need to discuss his pound of cure process. It's an approach to health and weight loss and metabolic change through changing your nutritional choice in a very simplified, no-nonsense approach. Today on the show, Matthew and I will discuss the benefits of healthy food choices, the outline of the program, and a whole range of other related, and some unrelated, bariatric surgery questions. I hope you enjoy the show. So welcome to the program, Dr. Matthew Weiner. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you here and to, you know, use up your time after hours is also very generous of you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about a range of things with you. Your approach to surgery and combining that with the understanding that you can also help your metabolism via eating certain foods. Um, how did that come about for you? Generally, I find, you know, surgeons are generally fabulous at surgery, but not necessarily always that well-equipped in the nutritional realm. How did you find yourself there? Well, it's it's a little bit of a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, you know, I think kind of everything that I've ever done uh, in my practice is, is kind of from having, from starting from kind of scratch on just, just with just myself and an office manager. So I was the dietitian in my first practice because I didn't, I would just started, I didn't have money to hire a dietitian. And so I figured, you know, I figured if I'm going to be the dietitian, I better get good at this. Um, so I started doing a lot of research about nutrition, reading different books, reading some scientific articles. And I started to kind of generate some, some ideas about what style of eating was probably the best for weight loss and for overall health. And so that was right around the same time that we started to understand how bariatric surgery actually works. So when I was a resident and I was learning these surgeries, I was taught that bariatric surgery works by blocking you from eating. We call that restriction or from preventing you from absorbing calories. We call that malabsorption. And it's, it's truthfully a very simplistic look at what happens with bariatric surgery. It blocks you from eating. Therefore, or you can't eat and that's why you lose weight. But anybody who's had the surgery will tell you that's not really what's going on. And as we started to dig deeper into the science, we understood that it was probably not a mechanical process like restriction or malabsorption, but a hormonal one. And it's a change in hormones like insulin and ghrelin and leptin that regulate our appetite, our choice of foods, our metabolic rate. And it's these changes that occur after disrupting your gastrointestinal anatomy that are actually driving the weight loss. And they did some incredibly elegant experiments in rats. And then ultimately in humans, not, not so much where they were kind of ex experimenting, but measuring certain things after bariatric surgery in, in humans. And so they started to really figure out this hormonal shift and that's what's driving the weight loss. So as I'm learning about this, I'm also talking to my patients extensively about nutrition because I'm the only person in the practice who can do that. And I start hearing my gastric bypass patients. And, and at that point, I was doing mostly bands and gastric bypasses. The sleeve wasn't really quite fully approved. Um, so I started hearing them saying, you know, 
it's weird. I loved pizza before surgery. I loved fried chicken. I loved all of these, you know, greasy and sweet foods, but now they're gross. You know what I love? Fruit. Dr. Weiner, have you tasted the peaches this year? Man, the peaches, they're incredible. I've never tasted a peach so sweet in my life. And I tasted the peaches. And they, I love peaches and they were delicious, but they weren't any better than they had been in years past. And so I started to kind of figure out that the hormonal changes that my patients were experiencing was driving them to pick specific foods that cause weight loss. And so really by listening to what my patients were telling me they like to eat, they like to eat beans, they like to eat nuts and seeds, lean animal protein in small amounts was, was good, but too much meat was, was not really so appetizing for them. And so I, I kind of compiled this general consensus of what people in this who what people like to eat when they're in the middle of this hormonal state to drive weight loss. And that's really where my program came from. And I kind of assembled it and created an eating style. And, and the, the theory is, and I think after about 10 years, is probably a lot of proof to this theory is that if you eat this way and you haven't had bariatric surgery, it may mimic some of these same changes. Now it's not going to drive weight loss with the same success rate that weight loss surgery does, but it certainly at least works along the same pathways and creates a sustainable method of eating that causes a favorable hormonal shift that helps reduce comorbidities and your body weight. Fascinating. That's actually the first time I've heard that, that the bariatric surgery was developed before we even knew that there was metabolic impacts. I didn't oh. know that. I know. I don't know where I've been. Yeah. But I, I know bariatric surgery existed, you know, way back and it was almost yeah. like the jaw wiring kind of approach of restriction. And then of course, over the period of time that's developed into that metabolic approach. But it's fascinating also that you talk about how food can mimic that kind of hormonal change as well. What brings that about? Do you think it's linked to the phyto? chemicals in the foods or more about the lack of kind of peaks and troughs in the blood glucose levels through processed foods and sugars and that sort of thing? I think it's probably a combination of all of them. I think, you know, processed foods have a lot of toxins in them. These toxins can drive you to eat uh, and stimulate your appetite. Artificial flavors, artificial sweeteners can inhibit natural satiety pathways. A diet high in fiber can change your microbiome. We know with bariatric surgery, there's a change in the bacteria in your mm -hmm. intestine or your microbiome that occur. And um, we also see changes when you move to a more plant-based diet. And I think there's also this idea of these phytonutrients that exist really primarily in plant foods and that they're these kind of, we, have, we focus on vitamin A and vitamin B, you know, thymine and folate and, and all these specific vitamins that we understand, but there's a, a huge number of chemicals mm. work in a similar fashion and in terms of deriving metabolic health and weight neutrality and um, all the things we kind of strive for in our health um, are, are, are driven by some of these phytonutrients. You know, we, we look at vitamins and and we think, well, these, these are the most important compound. But really, if you look at the scientific history of vitamins, the overwhelming majority of the vitamins that we measure that we give people on a regular basis are things that when deficient, they cause disease. 
So vitamin A deficiency causes night blindness. Vitamin C deficiency causes scurvy. Vitamin D deficiency causes rickets. These are, these are diseases that we have identified a certain, a single compound that if it's deficient in your diet, you'll develop. But these are diseases of the past. I mean, these aren't diseases of the future and, and in the present. And, and so it's very likely that just taking vitamins alone is not adequate, that you really, there's other compounds, these phytonutrients that are invaluable in helping you have a healthy metabolism, mm-hmm. one that's resistant to weight gain. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at even the things they talk about, just take green tea, for example, the compounds, there's very little talk about the vitamins in green tea, but the research on green tea and how it can change your life and your health trajectory and help with, you know, cardiovascular disease and antioxidant qualities. And it's, they're the compounds that we're talking about. There's not necessarily, you know, measurable amounts of vitamins that we're looking at as the benefit of, you know, taking green tea for an example. But there's a whole, there's a fantastic book I've also read. It's called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And it's all the research on all these amazing compounds that are on offer. And they're only available in food. And a lot of them are synergistic. So if you remove, you know, we've got persimmon now that we're taking from turmeric and it's got amazing properties for anti-inflammation and cancer and gut health and all that sort of stuff. But I think also if you're not eating the food alongside with any supplements, you might need for medical reasons you yeah you stand to lose a lot as far as you know vascular health from bioflavonoids and all those sorts of things so the dpu dig i mean we're pretty complex little machines aren't we and i think that's the fascinating part of it i mean we are so much more complex and i think that's that's one thing as i practice medicine longer. Like I've given up trying to figure this stuff out. I'm never going to figure it out. It's not in my lifetime. Am I going to, am I going to understand this? And I uh, love it. I love that. We're living in the time where we're starting to talk about it and research it as well. And there's, as a nutritionist, there's so many new things to learn. And you take our current pandemic for an example, and as we're only two years in and we've, we're treating it totally different way than we were in the very beginning. Now they're saying it's more, yeah. yeah, it's like now we're treating the brain because they're discovering that that's where all the action is and all those downstream effects. So it's it's like that at the moment in nutrition. We're just doing so much and learning so much. Yeah. But it's and fascinating our, how it's infinite. Yeah, our natural instinct is like, oh, green tea is good. Let me extract the compound and take it in a pill yeah. and then I won't get cancer. Or I'll use it to cure cancer. That doesn't work. No, it's it all of the compounds yeah. together. They yeah. work, as you said, synergistically. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you. So tell us, patients come to you. They're obviously having trouble with their weight. They're looking at what which ways to go. What would you, what, how do you manage that when a patient presents and um, you know their diet's not on point, but you also know that they're a candidate for bariatric surgery? What would you, you know, what would your recommendations be from there? Well, I mean, you know, it's, that's, that's a, truthfully, there's a, there's a lot of complexity there. So, you know, your diet's not on point. What's that mean? I don't know anybody whose diet is truly on point, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't eat perfectly. I don't expect my patients to eat perfectly. I think there's a big difference between um, someone who eats 
fast food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and drinks a two liter of Coke versus someone who every now and then eats some pizza or some carbs or some bread and, and some sweets every now and then. There's a huge, you know, your nutrition is a spectrum and where you lie on that spectrum. So I try to kind of put that on a spectrum and I'm over, I'm working on a lot of projects right now where we have like questionnaires that can help, you know, through a series of questions can kind of put you on that spectrum. Um, and so looking at your nutritional spectrum is something I, you know, I really try to do with patients. So if they're way off the, the end of, at the end of the spectrum where their diet is just terrible, you got to work on the diet first, because especially in someone who doesn't have a strong family history of obesity, that person, that's someone who may be able to succeed with, with, with nutrition alone. And I'm lucky enough, you know, we have a, a non-surgical weight loss program in our practice. I have an excellent physician assistant who runs it. Um, and I, I know I can just, you know, I can send this person over, over to her and she mm. can help get their diet on point and, and help do what we can from a non-surgical perspective. And then maybe I meet with them again, three to six months later. And so I think, you know, deciding about bariatric surgery is something that, you know, there's so many factors involved. It's also about people's expectations. You know, if you're 280 pounds and your goal is to get to 180 pounds, I, I think it's unfair to enroll someone in a non-surgical weight loss program and say, well, this is how you do it. Because the chance of losing hundred pounds in a non-surgical weight loss program, even with the excellent new medications we have out, uh, is probably around four to five percent. And setting someone up for a four to five percent chance of success isn't really setting someone up for success. And so I, I think there's so many things that you have to work with in, with on a patient to determine whether surgery is the right thing for them. Yeah, and it's from that holistic angle as well, which is what you're offering. And it's fantastic that you've got those options on offer. Um, tell me a little bit about the most important factors that determine success after weight loss surgery. Well, you know, I think everybody wants to say, and, and I hear this all the time. I hear this from other, from doctors where they'll say, oh, you know, th this patient of yours, she really took things seriously and she was amazing. And man, has she turned her life around. But the other guy I sent you, he really hasn't committed as deeply. And I will have had conversations with both of them. And I'm not sure I would assess their level of commitment as being different at all. If anything, sometimes it's the less successful patient who I find is more deeply committed, working harder to make the changes than the person who's been more successful. And the reason for that is that genetics is the primary determinant of success after surgery. They did a fascinating study it's probably a decade old at this point where they looked and they did some statistical correlation. So they pulled people randomly and they said, okay, let's see what the correlation is between two people who have bariatric surgery, same kind of basic demographics, age, height, weight, that kind of stuff. And so let's see. And what they found is that there's a lot of difference, you know, just because two people kind of start in the same boat, there's a lot of difference. Some will lose more weight than others. And, and we'll certainly see 10, um, some maybe even with a with sleeve, um, gastrectomy as much as 20% difference from patient to patient um, of, the, of the amount of weight loss. So, so then they said, well, maybe it's environmental. Maybe this is what people are eating. So let's look at husbands and wives uh, because it, oftentimes they eat in a similar fashion. They kind of share a food environment to some degree. And so let's compare husbands and wives. And they found a little tighter correlation, but not that much more. Then they said, well, let's look at this from a genetic perspective. Let's look at people who have a first degree relative who've had bariatric surgery, brother, sister, parent, child. 
and let's measure the correlation of success between them. And it was very close, very close. You had a parent who was successful, like you were likely to be successful. And the same went for if that person was unsuccessful. And, and so they're starting to dig in and identify some of these genes that drive weight loss success after, after weight loss surgery. We're a, a long way away from being able to really figure this out closely, but it's genetics that determines this. The problem is you can't change your genetics. They are what they are. You know, when we look at behaviors, uh, um, it's, then it is the obvious things. It's the nutrition. It's the uh, exercise. I think that people don't always realize other factors like medications. Medications are probably one of the most common causes of weight regain that I see in my practice. There's a lot of medications that cause weight gain. And a lot of those come with those, you know, comorbidities that follow obesity as well. So they kind of work in hand in hand as well. With your program, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. You've written this fantastic book. It's called A Pound of Cure. And you outlined a little bit in the, uh, the answer to our first question about the kind of ways of eating that can help with metabolic change. Can you tell me a little bit, I've read the book and I think the, um, the approach is, like we were saying off camera, the approach is very simple. The implementation is kind of where it's at. But can you give me a rough outline of your Pound of Cure program and how that might work? Well, you know, the, the name comes from the first step that I have all my patients take, which is to start eating a pound of vegetables every day. And a lot of people are like, whoa, a pound? You go to the grocery store, you guys in pounds or kilos? Kilos. I was just about to interrupt you and say, what is a pound? I'll need to explain this. So let's call it a half kilo of of, um, vegetables. 483 grams or something like that. Yeah. So it's half a kilo. (laughs) (laughs) A little under half a kilo. Yeah. So you eat half a kilo of vegetables a day. And if you go to the grocery store and you measure that out, it's really not that much. Like a large cucumber often will weigh close to a pound. A couple of tomatoes will weigh uh, close to a pound. I used to um, get this large salad at the the cafeteria and you would pay by the pound and I would always weigh it. Ah. It was often over a pound. And so, you know, a large salad is typically well over a pound of vegetables. So that's just, that's a pound. The real magic truthfully happens at a, at two pounds or probably two, uh, one kilo, yeah. but you start eating that much vegetable in a day. And what it does is it really crowds out processed foods. And the idea is, you know, adding the foods in. And so it's focused, focused on eating pound or half a kilo or more of vegetables, as much fruit as you like. I think fruit is unfairly villainized. Oh, I hear it all the time. Uh, you must eat half a cup of beans every day. Beans are also one of the most filling and satiating foods there are. They do have a lot of carbohydrates, but it's a very different carbohydrate than what we find in bread and other processed carbs. And so bean carbohydrate actually does uh, helps you with weight loss. Nuts and seeds in general, I, I allow patients to, to eat those fairly unlimited. In the book, I think I do limit them, but over time I've realized we can, we can kind of stretch a little bit there and people don't gain weight. And then it's avoiding the processed foods. It's avoiding the, um, uh, the refined sugars and processed carbohydrates and, and um, added oils and artificial sweeteners and flavors, all those things kind of avoid it. Very simple. Yeah. Simplified. And I yeah. like that. I mean, 
I think we're just, it's just new habits, isn't it, a lot of the time? And once you remove those processed foods and your cravings and that kind of dysregulation of appetite unfolds, you yeah. begin to start to listen. And I think that you used that word before. And I was like, that's one of the key things also after surgery is learning how to listen. Am I hungry? What am I hungry for? What have I not had today? And that kind of, I guess, internal dialogue around food that um, needs to be put in place and maybe hasn't been imparted um, until then. But yeah, it sounds like a very simple, um, and even in the book, it's very easily laid out. So you have the two-week intro period, and then you basically just eat at least a pound of veggies, make sure you have, you know, three serves of protein for a woman, four serves if you're a man, and some from um, plant sources. So looking at diversifying, which a lot of bariatric patients need to do, I think after surgery, they find some meat proteins are hard to digest. So there is a lot of a, there's a larger movement to plant-based, mainly just because that's what will work for them. You were talking about that a little bit earlier, about different forms of protein after surgery and um, which ones are the best kind and do we need shakes forever? What are your thoughts on those kind of things? So, you know, I think first of all, protein shakes are critical in the first six months to a year after surgery. And this is a really important transition that I think a lot of bariatric surgery patients don't really see the path of. So you start off and all the nutrition work is about getting you through the first few months when you can, when meeting your hydration and your protein goals is a challenge. And so during that time period, protein shakes are critical. It's extremely difficult to do that without protein shakes. Now we tend to just say, well, let me go to the store and I'll buy the chocolate ones or I'll buy the vanilla ones. Or, oh, I, they have chicken soup ones too. Um, and so we just kind of pick the flavor and, and sometimes that works. And when that works, it's great. You know, it's simple, it's easy and generally pretty in, inexpensive compared to real food. And so that's a great option if that works for you. But because of some of the changes I talked about where your metabolism is driving you to choose foods that are going to help you with weight loss, like when they contain artificial sweeteners and artificial flavors are often, they don't taste as good. And patients tell me all the time, I don't understand. These shakes were fine before surgery, but they are disgusting now. What has changed? And so because of that, a lot of times you have to make your own protein shake. And that's where like an unflavored whey protein comes in and allows you to mix something like fruit. Like, so one of something I like to do is take some, some yogurt, some bananas and some peanut butter, and maybe some unsweetened cocoa powder, and then a little bit of unflavored whey protein. And you can get to 25, 30 grams of protein in that mm. shake, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial flavors. And it tends to be much more tolerated. And I've gotten at this point, hundreds and hundreds of patients through the post-op process who really really accredit that natural shape to what got them through this comfortably. And it also stops that experimentation. I think a lot of people are going out and buying the store-bought options and trying to find one that they either like the taste of or that sits well or isn't too sweet or doesn't, you know, it's so many different things that they can not like about a particular meal replacement shake off the shelf, palatability, texture, that sort of thing. I think when you keep it simple like that, it's milk, yogurt, protein powder and nature's own fruit and, you know, sweeteners. Your body has trouble rejecting those sorts of things. Would you agree? Yeah, no, for sure. And it's, it's just kind of where your metabolism is pushing you types of foods. It also gives you more control. You know, you like it a little thinner, you can add a little bit of ice or almond milk or, you know, 
some water to thin it out. Um, and I think that's something also uh, patients want that prescribed approach. Just tell me what to eat, doc, and I'll eat exactly what you tell me. And then it'll all be fine. I don't know what to tell you because everybody is different. What I tell you, the net isn't going to work on the next person. And what you have to do is is figure this out for yourself. And that's really where the concept of mindful eating comes in. And I think in every stage after surgery, there's something really valuable that you can learn. And in that first recovery stage, when you're barely able to eat, barely able to meet your protein requirement, where every time you sit down, you're like, is this going to work or not? That is a, that is a masterclass in mindful eating. And if you don't pay attention to every single bite, the texture of the food, how it makes you feel, whether you want to eat another bite or not, you're going to get yourself in some trouble and have some Mm. unpleasant symptoms. And so it forces you to eat that way at the beginning, but you should embrace that because it's a life skill that you can continue to use for years afterward, well past the time when one wrong bite is trouble. Mm, That's a good point. And I I talk about the first year being the honeymoon, but it's also the time where we need to implement these habits of what do I eat? When do I eat it? How much do I, you know, and what sits well and what doesn't? So yes, it's experimental, but it's that real and hunger's not roaring like it normally is and it does return. So it's that time where we really lay the foundation of this is my portion size and this is how fast I eat it and this is how I eat my meals now. So I think it, it becomes a real process. We talk about ritual around food and it used to be, you know, more about celebration and that sort of stuff. But ritual needs to be surrounding everything we eat and, you know, when we eat and, you know, in what kind of, I think they've even done studies on, um, you know, if you're happy when you're eating or if you're in good company, you're actually taking in more nutrition from that food because your body's in that state, acceptance and allowance and relaxation. And that's when, you know, we need to have a look at, are we getting up too late, rushing around in the morning and grabbing that off the shelf protein meal, meal replacement? and sitting in the car in the traffic and, you know, trying to get it in under stress? Or are we just getting up 15 minutes earlier to make our own shake and get the day underway in a more relaxed fashion? I think those sorts of things are really key as far as the behavioural change that also comes with bariatric surgery. Yeah, it's about building the habits. Yeah, absolutely. On that, do you have any kind of recommendation for your patients that kind of short tracks that process? Well, I mean, I think you hit on it when you talked about the honeymoon. You know, I, I kind of separate the recovery phase from the honeymoon phase mm. uh, because I think they are very different. The recovery phase, you're losing weight rapidly, but you don't, you know, you're struggling to eat. Eating is, a, is a difficult. And within a month or two, I'd say 98% of patients are kind of past that and are able to, to meet their fluid and protein and vitamin requirements without too much difficulty and really have no hunger. And in the absence of hunger, you can change your habits. There's mm. never going to be a time in your life when it's easier to change the way you eat than during that honeymoon period for the first year or two or sometimes three or four, um, particularly for gastric bypass patients. When you don't have hunger, it's easy to change. What do you yeah. care doesn't matter. It's and not so as emotional, is it? Yeah. So uh, there's not all those emotional drivers around. You know, sometimes I look and I hear this almost panicked understanding of hunger. It's like, oh my God, I'm hungry. Like yeah. it needs to be like stopped immediately because it's, you know, detrimental or it's whatever. And it's our connection with hunger um, or our need to keep things feeling full, that sort of stuff from a more kind of psychological perspective, I suppose. But it's, um, it's often, I think, that instantaneous muscle 
must act now on this hunger that we kind of get the choice around eventually as well and then get to let well it's lunchtime <laughs> it's more about time it's lunchtime what do we do at lunchtime what's my habit for lunchtime um i'm finding as i get older i'm getting a bit more rigid in my habits so i'm always i've always rebuked being routine and boring but it's happening um and I think I'm probably the most well I've ever been as a result because it's so structured and so automated now. So a lot of that comes from following the guidelines in the book as well. You were talking about in your office how you have a online program for patients. Is that something that our audience in Australia might be able to access or some resources and information? So if you can figure out the time change, we actually, so we do have people from all over the US and the US has three main t- um, time zones. I four main time zones. And so we, our software doesn't calculate the time zone that you're in. So we've had some <laughs> issues with that. Uh, and you guys being, I think we figured out 17 hours ahead. It could be a little tricky, but yeah, it is certainly open to anybody who wants to join. And I, you know, I have this fantastic uh, dietitian named Zoe um, and she does, you know, she does group sessions. I hold a session every week as well. So she'll do a group session once, uh, you know, four or five times a day and patients can just log in and, and uh, connect to the, the session by Zoom. And they're kind of centered around different topics like uh, the metabolic reset diet is kind of the pound of cure, the purest version of the pound of cure program. And so we have a class on following that and meal planning for that and a class on the first six weeks or so after surgery and how to increase veggie intake and people with sugar addiction. So there's all these different support sessions that people can attend and, and hear from other bariatric patients. Um, what I also like is I have my pre-op patients join those classes. And I think that's also great for them to be able to hear what my post-op patients are actually experiencing. So you know what you're signing up for. Yeah, that's a great. And I think that's key is do do you feel people know originally what they're signing up for when they undertake this surgery? You walked into that question. <laughs> I mean, that's my that's my mission in life. Mm. I mean, I have a hundred plus YouTube videos that are there for people's education about bariatric surgery. This surgery is unique. You know, most other surgeries, and I'm not saying that obesity isn't a, a disease or a pathology state. It clearly is. But, you know, the way our society views it, oh, you have a hernia. Well, what do you do? You get it fixed, right? God forbid you have cancer. Well, you, you got to get it out. I, I think with bariatric surgery, it's a little more of a statistical play. It's a lifestyle choice. It's a strategic decision. It's a, here's what's going on with my health. These issues may be addressed by this surgical procedure that will require some change and, and adjustment for me. And I'm counting on this making my life better. And it's, it's more than any other surgery. It's a quality of life surgery. There's, of course, diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and all those things. Um, but I think the the majority of the people that I see in my practice are making this decision for quality of life reasons. And so because that's why they're deciding this, they should be able to figure this out as much as possible beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we talk about it almost being like a pregnancy. You have the idea of having a child and then nine months later, you have a child. But in that time, what do you do? You're going to be a parent. You start researching like I need this baby to sleep. How am I going to get this baby to sleep? I know that was one of my main goals was how much does this child need to eat and when can it sleep because I need to get back to work soon. So it was like those kind of things, but I'm likening it to 
should we not be treating it with as much passion as I'm just about to have a child? We need to know what we're getting into. And I think a lot of people who sign up for like health insurance here, they have a year-long waiting period. And I hear it in our groups. A lot of them are very resentful that they've got to wait a a year. But that's the time is to do these kind of things and to read up and, and get a grasp on what's ahead rather than just bloop. Often you go into bariatric surgery and then the next thing, your your, your life is really turned upside down. And the, the effects of it are great, but the learning curve is so incredibly steep if you're not prepared for that. And I, I really think that your work is, you know, obviously the videos and that sort of stuff gives people that insight. And that's a lot of why we do the podcast is to, you people can hop on at the beginning of the journey and they know, you know, we, we started with what is bariatric surgery and what type of operations are there. We work through mindset all that sort of stuff so even if they're just testing the water and they're not sure what they'd like to do by the time they find your work or mine they've got a really good understanding of what's next and am I up for it and if I'm not up for it but I still want to do it how do I get myself to that point where I'm ready very and again it's a really complex condition so it it does take you know so many different uh, I guess avenues of looking at what led me here and how will I undo this slowly um, and what kind of support do I need that's also the key I think is that post-surgical support what do you notice in the kind of success rates I suppose I mean the patients who follow up on their appointments and turn up to see their dietitian and that sort of thing what's the difference between going it alone and you know being a real part of that process I mean we definitely have evidence that says that if you attend more appointments that you lose more weight and I think you know whether that's cause or effect I don't know you know Mm. if I'm not losing weight. I'm not going to be in a hurry to go see my bariatric surgeon. Yeah, that's the right thing. (laughs) And kind of going back to my original thought about genetics being the primary motivating factor Mm -hmm. uh, for for driving weight loss. If I'm not losing weight, I might not want to show up and not feel good about my weight loss, where if I'm losing a ton of weight, I'm going to want to go in and, you know, do the happy dance. Yeah. I go out what size clothes I'm wearing and all that kind of stuff. Um, So, you know, whether that's cause or effect, I I have a hard time saying, I don't think it hurts though. Uh, The, I I think putting the time and energy into the post-operative support program is really important. I think the problem that we have is we, we judge too much about people's success or, or lack of success. Not that even the worst failures after weight loss surgery would still be considered amazing weight loss successes by any other means. Um, But I think we kind of, there's a lot of unrealistic expectations out there. Oh, I weigh 350 pounds. I want to get to 120. Is that realistic? No, it's not. That is incredibly unrealistic. No surgery will do that for you. Yeah. And so I think setting appropriate expectations up front, letting people understand the actual causes of weight loss failure or or success, which are often not nutritionally based, but more medically based. Like I mentioned earlier, medication, disrupted sleep-wake cycles, stress and depression, inactivity and injury. These are all things that lead to a lower amounts of weight loss after surgery mm. or weight regain. And we need to make sure that our patients understand that, you know, this is part of the journey. This is part of the process. I've had patients so often be like, I've been so afraid to come talk to you, Dr. Weiner. I've gained 15 pounds. I'm so ashamed of myself. I, I feel like I've been eating the same and I'll look and I'll be like, Oh, you're on this medication now. When did you start this medication? Oh, four months ago. How much yeah. weight have you had in the last four months? That's when I've gained the weight. And so because we just immediately are so quick to blame ourselves for weight 
gain that we don't want to see treatment for it. And I think one of my missions is also making sure all of my patients understand if you aren't losing weight, it's okay. Mm. We'll still love you. We'll still <laughs> be proud of you. Yeah. And most importantly, we'll still help you. That's a big one. And there is research to show that patients who are overweight are waiting seven years longer than they should to even reach out in the first place about a weight concern because of the stigma and because of the, you know, a lot of the time they go to their doctor and they're like, oh, we'll just eat less and move more and let's try that. And the statistics on eating less and moving more and weight loss and sustainable weight loss are really not exciting. So they're not only delaying getting help, but then when they do get help and they've still got a chronic condition that's likely genetic, it's a whole lot of different, I guess, contributing factors. But the first thing you're right, they do is they blame themselves when regain starts. And it might be that it's the natural regain, or it might be that it's the medication. But until they're having the conversation ongoingly with their practitioners, they're just going to run the story in the head of I'm failing this, and I can't step up and, you know, go and get help. So it is that um, constant conversation that even it's like when you go to the psychologist, and you think you've got nothing to talk about, and then suddenly, there you are, <laughs> peeling off another layer of the onion that you thought you'd worked on and cracked that nut, but you haven't. But that's the same thing. Like if you turn up, just turn up, even if it is to look at how beautiful I am and how much weight I've lost and to yeah. be proud and to show off what you've done. But there's always something to gain about consulting with a professional who may not, you know, knows that little bit more than you do and something to learn. I think it's, um, I think that's key is keep learning. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that the new weight loss medications that are, they're really kind of taking off in the US and there's a lot of, you know, work on them. And this is something that in our non-surgical weight loss practice, we are prescribing a ton of, uh, and really, really happy with the results, but it's, it, it's starting to recognize that obesity is a disease. Mm. It's a metabolic problem. It's a consequence of our food chain and it's not this personal failing. And the solution is not, you know, willpower and discipline, but an understanding of your best metabolic health, whether it's with these new medications, whether it's with weight loss surgery, whether it's with a change in the, the type of eat a food that you're, you're focusing on eating. Mm -hmm. But one way or the other, we have to kind of understand this as a, a metabolic dysregulation of your fat storage as opposed to a personal failing. Good point. And I think, can we touch on that, just the medical um, interventions that are available and and the, the fact that, yes, some people who've had obesity surgery also need to, down the track, explore the obesity drugs as well. And I think that's also a really important reason to keep in contact with your team is that they will know when those sorts of other helpers are on offer, which then helps to, you know, that long-term success. You don't need revision surgery. You might just need the, you know, the extra help from the medications what are you seeing I, I was listening to a podcast recently they're talking about research where they're combining a few of the obesity drugs and getting even better results and that was really exciting have you heard much about that yeah so so i mean what's there's a, a number of things that are kind of out there on the horizon the things that the, the real the base um, of all obesity treatment right now from a medical perspective is glp1 analogs yeah. or, or agonists um, and these are medic 
medications, they can be injectable or in pill form, and they trigger one of the pathways that are also triggered by bariatric surgery. And so I think that's something that's really interesting to me is they kind of work in this along the same ways that the surgeries do. Um, and so they are, so the, the best in class right now is semi-glutide, which in the U.S. we call it Ozempic if it's for diabetes or Wegovy if it's for weight loss. Um, but the molecule is semi-glutide. It comes in an injectable form formulation. That's the most effective one. You inject it once a week and the dose ranges, you start at 0.25. The weight, the max weight loss dose is 2.4 milligrams. And, and I will tell you, this medication works. A very effective weight loss medication. And it works kind of by decreasing your appetite, changing your food preferences, not resulting in any slowed down metabolism as your calorie, if you calorie, you know, if your calorie intake goes down. And so that to me, that's, that's really becoming, that is the gold standard. They're adding some extra stuff and that's all experimental. I honestly, I'm a practicing mm. surgeon, you know, yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not an academic guy. I'm a private practice. I practice on the cutting edge on what's available now. The future, I've been around long enough to know that whatever people talk about is the future, probably wrong. And so I'm, you know, I'm much more interested in tried and true. These medications have been around for 10, 15 years and they were great results. And yeah. so if you're a patient who's done their weight loss surgery, they return to you, they're suffering, they've gained 15 kilos. They're not sure why they've eliminated medications. What do you, what other things do you look for when that's happening? Re Regain is a massive issue for our patients and not only regain itself but the fear of it is really something that i don't know i think so many people struggle with is even immediately after surgery they're they're in the stage you know liquids and purees and they're still they're already worried about is this going to work and can i crack this nut and am i going to be that you know who does regain what do you kind of where do you start with a patient who has experienced regain well, the, as well a, first of all the place to really start with regain is at the procedure choice before surgery mm -hmm. and making sure that you acknowledge that a sleeve gastrectomy has a substantially higher rate of weight regain compared to a gastric bypass. And I think that's something that I make as a point to all of my patients. I think people are starting to understand that and see that now that the sleeve has been around for a while. Um, so I think that's really where you start. Now, obviously, very few of us uh, possess a time machine. So if you've already had surgery and are struggling with weight regain, then, you know, it's a it's a very systematic approach that I take. The first thing I do is look for causes of weight gain. And it's the, the nutritional and the non-nutritional ones, the sleep disruption, the inactivity, the injury, medications, all those things. It's the nutritional ones like sugar-containing beverages. I think something else, alcohol causes a lot of weight gain. And I think that's something that we have to, we kind of always just blow alcohol off and don't really mm. ask too much about it, but it's a major cause of weight regain. And we know that gastric bypass patients have an increased rate of alcoholism. So, you know, yeah. sometimes when people come in with weight regain, their actual problem may be alcohol. Mm. Um, so kind of figuring out the cause and then a step-by-step -step approach. There's four ways you can lower your body weight set point, the weight that your body tries to defend and maintain. The first way is nutritional change. That's what the Pound to Cure program is. It's about changing what you eat, not how much you eat. The second is building muscle and using it, which in younger people is 
totally doable. And mm -hmm. someone who's 55 years old with some severe osteoarthritis is not really realistic. Um, and so oftentimes we just kind of push right past that and then medications and then finally surgery if there's a revision that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, and kind of working in a step-by-step -step fashion down that pathway, uh, helping people with the least invasive and safest, which is nutritional change through to, through to exercise and medications and potentially to revision surgery, which truthfully we're, we're able to avoid most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that approach starting with food is always going to be, I interviewed bariatric professor not that long ago, and he, when someone comes to him with regain, he will also get a partner or a family member to come into the meeting as well so that they can give their understanding of the patient's behavioural patterns and that sort of stuff. We call it snacking amnesia. Um, yeah. But often it's, you know, this under-reporting, which you know, there, there's the shame of regain. So then there's the under-reporting. Um, but then there's the inability to help someone who's not able to say, you know, I'm drinking too much or I'm eating, you know, Mars bars morning, noon and night. Or, yes, my habits have slipped back to, you know, eating carbs first and that sort of thing. I think being honest with yourself as a patient first and then being open is, um, is really the main way that you can get that kind of overview of help as well. Tell us long-term after bariatric surgery, what do patients need to look for the most? What's like, we were talking about nutritional deficiencies earlier on, iron deficiency, that sort of stuff. What stands out to you as being one of the key things that, um, you know, is, is problematic after weight loss surgery? So, I mean, I think one of the advantages of the sleeve is that we really don't see a ton of nutritional deficiencies, maybe a little bit of iron deficiency after sleep, but nothing like what we see after gastric bypass. Mm -hmm. the, the, the long-term issue with the sleeve is heartburn, reflux, yeah. and it can be pretty substantial. And, and, you know, I think about 5% of all sleep patients get revised to a gastric bypass for, um, for heartburn or difficulty swallowing or vomiting. From a nutritional perspective, it's really centered around the gastric bypass. That's where we're seeing some of these nutritional problems. People really focus on, oh, on all of the different B vitamins and the thymine. And, and the truth is, if you're eating a rel relatively balanced diet and are taking some kind of basic form of vitamin supplementation, you're probably okay with 98% of the vitamin deficiencies that you're going to see. Yeah. The one that we really see a lot of, and that I think every gastric bypass patient needs to be aware of is iron deficiency. This is real. If your iron drops, then you'll become anemic. Your hemoglobin can drop down and you can end up being admitted to the hospital for a blood transfusion. I've seen that many times, truthfully, where everybody's think, oh, she must be having a bleed and there's no blood. It's just, just iron. And so you have to check your iron regularly. There's two different forms of iron supplements. There's the iron salts, which are ferrous sulfate. These are generally, at least in the U.S., available, you know, at every drugstore and, and you know, widely available. Uh, the problem with them is that they are very poorly tolerated. Lots of abdominal pain, cramping, constipation. I'd say 60 to 70% of people cannot take enough of the iron ferrous sulfate they need to meet their to, to fix their deficiency and tolerate it. But then there's other formulations. I kind of refer to them as chelated, which are, are much better tolerated. And they're a little bit more expensive, but not that much more. Mm. Not very affordable products. You could probably talk more about that than I, I could. Um, but these chelated iron formulations are really 
better tolerated. And, and I'd say the overwhelming majority of people who have iron deficiency can treat it as satisfactorily just with these chelated iron. Mm, I agree with that. And a lot of it is about compliance. I find that, you know, the recommendations for a patient who runs low in iron is up to 200 milligrams a day. I don't know anyone who can do that with a fumarate. (laughs) It's awful. So it's then, and the timing of iron supplementation, once you reach a deficient state, you need to be really consistent with that dose for three to six months. And it's when the blood, the blood's turning over, blood cells turn over every 120 days. So each time you're putting more iron, B12, that sort of stuff in the bank, those new blood cells will be much healthier. So it's cyclic. And that's why we test the blood for iron at intervals of kind of three months period to see what's going on. But I think it's underplayed. I think the, you know, iron deficiency, we talk about from a, I'm feel tired, but it's actually Actually, your blood cells are not forming properly um, and they're not able to do their job. I think it's a bigger deal than, you know, we talk about. When I, when I have a complicated patient who, let's say, has a chronic ulcer and I have to do a complicated revision surgery on them, I will fix their iron mm-hmm. before I will operate on them because I feel that having a, um, iron deficiency will uh, interfere with their ability to heal after to surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think iron is involved in a lot more than just making blood cells. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, brain fog and that sort of stuff. But I think it's so widely accepted that we don't feel 100%, that a lot of people don't recognise how good they could feel until they do kind of boost those levels again. Um, So it is a big one. And I think just before we finish up on iron, a lot of patients will wait until they qualify for the infusion where you're dragging your heels around town for a long time before you actually qualify for an infusion. Yeah, it's that kind of daily, taking that daily supplementation. Avoiding infusion should be the goal. Yeah, but I think it can be something like the B12 injections are heavily relied on as a, you know, a top up every month or two months. Why not take something every day that just is your insurance policy against the deficiency anyway? I just yeah. think it doesn't make sense to me that, and and I see it that if patients are waiting until they are too low and then boosting, whereas that daily kind of trickling in of those extra nutrients is some um, quality of life, I think, is the big key. All those healthy neurotransmitters and good mood that leads you to eat good food. And like, it's, it's so interconnected. I'm aware of your time. I have one last question for you. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, how we could access your YouTube channel and your website. And, you know, for people who are looking to learn a little bit more about um, the way you approach, you know, nutrition and um, weight loss surgery. Well, I mean, so, so everything kind of starts with my website, which is poundofcureweightloss.com. And, you know, you can kind of find everything from there, but on YouTube, I'm Dr. Matthew Weiner, Dr. Matthew Weiner. I'm the same on Instagram as well. Um, And I actually am working a lot on um, adding some content to Instagram and interacting with people. And, you know, that's actually been a lot of fun. Um, So I've been doing that that a lot uh, lately. So certainly follow me on Instagram. uh, And we're we're putting out, you know, bariatric and weight loss content pretty much daily. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you. All of those links will be in the show notes on the AustralianWeightLossSurgeryPodcast.com. 
Um, any of our episodes, I often forget to uh, mention where our show notes are actually located. So it's good to know they're on the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast website and all the previous episodes as well. Dr. Weiner, it's been wonderful and um, I'm so grateful for your time. We've, I'd love to have you back on the show for other opportunities to talk about sort of the benefits of your programs and weight loss surgery as well if you're open. That would be great. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Really great Thank conversation. You. Uh, so, I mean, I always learn something. It's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.